1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington DC, which is uh, actually rather beautiful today. Uh, uh, Surprisingly, it hasn't been for a long, long time. Uh, We are uh, uh, here to uh, do our weekly discussion of what's going on around the world, Uh, and for that, uh, we have um, our uh, two of our very best friends, uh, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. How are you doing, Rosa?
2: I am very well. Thank you, David.
1: Excellent. And Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey?
3: I am so exceedingly well, David. I am in San Diego, where I have been collecting sand dollars on Coronado Beach, and I am now extremely rich in sand dollars. Uh, <laughs>
1: are you there for- uh, which,
3: which
2: is lucky, Corey? because I see the U.S. dollar is losing value, so you should hang on to those. Yeah. It's That's the
3: something. currency of the future. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, well, if we could, do, there's, there's a Chinese plot unfolding there. We can talk about that in a second. We have a uh, China expert with us, Sheena Chestnut Greitens. She's an associate professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas and directs the Asia Policy Program there. She's also the Jean Kirkpatrick Visiting Fellow at AEI. uh, And uh, she's the author of a recent piece, which sort of turned me on to having this conversation um, uh, which uh, a- appeared in Foreign Affairs, uh, and it's called "She's Security Obsession: Why China Is Digging In at Home and Asserting Itself Abroad." I recommend it. Came out July twenty eighth. Welcome, Sheena.
4: Thank you. It's great to join you all today.
1: Um, well, it's 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 good to have you here. Uh, AEI is overrepresented, but we're gonna we're gonna forge AEI on. Is- Properly represented. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, we've you know we have we have not had a sort of in depth conversation about um, uh, China recently, and China has been in the news a lot um, uh, uh, for, for a variety of reasons, ranging from participating in uh, kind of quasi peace talk process regarding uh, Ukraine to preparations for the BRICS summit meeting, and there, there was talk about you know, an alternative currency to the dollar that that I referred to earlier. And, of course, China's foreign minister, Qingdong, uh, disappeared, um, uh, rather uh, surprisingly, from uh, uh, the world's radar a while back, Um, and on and on. It's, you know, almost every issue has to do with uh, China. I was just, uh, I just wrote an article today for the Daily Beast about, possible Israel-Saudi Arabia deal that the U.S. has been brokering uh, and, you know, down in the coverage in the Wall Street Journal it said the real reason we're doing this deal isn't Middle East peace. It's to get China from being too close to Saudi Arabia. So, you know, everything, you know, always comes back to China. But I guess, Sheena, that's that's good for your line of work, right?
4: I think uh, it, it definitely keeps all of us busy and a lot of national security Folks on their toes.
1: Well, let's let's start with the thesis of your your piece um, because it, t- it 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 suggests that China is taking a, a, an entirely new approach to its national security, and it manifests itself in everything from uh, it, domestic policy, including uh, 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 not uh, very recently a uh, you know kind of a, an admonition that everybody in China was involved in. Uh, Um, counter espionage and and national security, to its foreign policy, how would you characterize it and why do you think it's significant?
4: Yeah, I think that what we've seen is that uh, the longer Xi Jinping has been in office, the more important regime security has become to every facet of how he governs. So it's become more important to how he regulates or tries to control the economy. It's become more and more important in China's foreign policy. And it's 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 been centrally important to how he governs the country, where we've seen about twenty different national security laws passed and then have updated. Um, so the counter espionage law is one of those. Um, we've seen you know dramatic changes in how he handles internal security and um, an increase in repression in places like Tibet, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and. Um, So he's really, you know, uh, had this across the board overhaul of China's internal and external security policies. Um, One of the interesting things about that, you know, people often ask, you know, well, haven't party leaders, you know, been concerned about these things before? Why Why are we seeing such a big change under Xi Jinping? And it's a good question because you did see Hu Jintao talk about the threats from foreign subversion or worry about foreign infiltration. And so some of the rhetoric actually has been around in Chinese thinking for a while. But Xi Jinping, when he came into office in in 2012, started signaling pretty clearly that he thought that China's way of doing state security or regime security was completely inadequate. And he's basically redesigned the bureaucracy, created a new National Security Commission, passed these laws, put his own team of people in place. And the landscape is dramatically different now at the beginning of his third term um, than it was when he first took office, which with just a much heavier emphasis on security and repression across the board.
1: What do you read into this, Corey? Do you see this as a worrisome sign, or do you see this as a sign that China is coming into its own as a major power and naturally is more concerned about this? What, 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 how do you interpret it, Corey? I
3: think it's an extremely worrisome sign. Um, one of the questions I'd love to hear from Sheena about, since 85% of what I think I know about China, I learned from Sheena, um, is we see um, parallel or as part of this increasing personalization and security obsession of Xi Jinping is that he appears in front of military audiences in combat fatigues very frequently. And, you know, there are at least two possibilities. One is this is a signal of how firmly he's in control, right? That he's one of them, that the military is subordinate to the Chinese Communist Party and to him personally. But the other possibility is that his hold on power, that all of this security obsession demonstrates a fragility of power which is actually pretty common over time with dictators. And then maybe he's showing up in combat fatigues because he's humanly worried about the military's loyalty. Um, So to answer your, so um, to give Sheena a second to think about that, I will answer the question you actually asked me, David, which is, I think this is extremely worrisome that Amassing that much power in a single set of hands tends toward erratic behavior. And the paranoia which seems to underwrite the trends Sheena was talking about makes me really nervous about the foreign and security choices that Xi Jinping will make and that there aren't breaks
4: in the system to his carrying out. Yeah, I would second Corey. I mean, I, I think that is really, these trends are really worrisome. Um, and I think that, that you know, Corey has highlighted a really important point here, which is that it, so much power is now concentrated in Xi Jinping's hands that the Chinese political system has become just inherently less predictable. It's become harder to figure out because so many of the decisions rest on Xi Jinping's perceptions and his psychology and his specific decision calculus, which we don't always have a, a clear sense of. And that's happened at the very time when China has shut off a lot of other sources of information from economic and statistical data to academics having trouble reading the research published in scholarly journals by by Chinese um, professors and researchers. Um, So I think that, you know, it's harder to understand at the same time that Xi Jinping appears to be, you know, more and more repressive and more and more assertive, but in, in ways that we're not always very good at, at predicting. So, you know, I do think these are worrisome developments. And it's not just something that the United States is worried about. I think you've seen lots of concern. Um, if you look at Pew opinion data, um, trends and perceptions of China have really gone downhill. Um, views of of China's Sort of role as a responsible power in the world have have declined, um, and you see a lot of of behavior by um, countries in the Indo-Pacific who are taking steps to try to bolster their own security because they are concerned about what they could be up against.
1: Uh, so, Rosa, of course, you may ask a question of of Sheena also if you like, uh, and as Corey, did you can ignore my question also, but but I have a question, um, and and that is. Um, it sort of goes back to what I was asking, Corey. We we're entering a new era. We entered a new era 10 years ago or so with China and the U.S. being sort of the, the principal players on the global stage. And and I think you could do an interpretation of of U.S. views towards China as sort of involving a heightened degree of concern and paranoia, whether we don't want to sell certain products to them or we don't want Chinese students in our schools or we're concerned about Chinese espionage and so forth. And so to what extent do you think what we're seeing from China is a natural extension of them entering kind of two-party superpower rivalry? And to what extent do you think it's Anomalous and and cause for concern.
2: Maybe both at once. I think, David. I mean, I, don't, I I think that's part of the problem with how we tend to think about China in this country. We we have a tendency to to either want to say, oh, there's nothing to see here. They're just a rising power, and we can cooperate. And of course, there's some competition, but everything is basically fine. And let's not be so paranoid. On the one hand, or on the other hand, saying. Uh, Oh, my God, you know, arch fiends with a global domination plan, you know, genius, evil geniuses. And this is super scary. And, you know, there is nothing they cannot do. And we must immediately, you know, try to try to protect ourselves. And and I think it's it's not one or the other. Right. I mean, yeah, China is a rising power. China is flexing its muscles. China is recovering from a period, a long period in which it felt humiliated as, as a power, uh, and, and, and part for good reasons, because we had really crappy policies, right? Um, you know, going back quite a long way to the, to the, to the colonial period. Um, so, you know, yes, China's flexing its muscles. Yes, that's completely natural. Um, in many ways it's it's inevitable we can't and shouldn't be trying to stop an enormous nation from from becoming more prosperous from caring about its own security etc you know that's what we did right that's what rising powers do and it's not particularly sinister on the other hand um it's while it is not a zero sum game China's rise inevitably poses risks to the United States, to other powers. China's interests and in ours are not the same. China's values and ours are not the same. You know, China, China's rise inherently poses threats. And, and, and it's, it's a, I think actually it's a really, the, the earlier discussion about Xi's role, right, and the degree to which power is increasingly personalized in China, that's actually kind of a scary thing right because nobody china is an enormous and complex nation uh the global economy the global security environment is enormously complex no there there is no single evil genius here right that that nobody is smart enough to completely understand it China's past experiments in personalizing power and attempting to exercise centralized control have not been a success for China or for anybody else uh, the more that power is personalized in China in some ways the riskier it gets both for China itself and for everybody else in the world you know so 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 I don't think that I don't think we should either demonize China nor underestimate the potential threat it poses and the threat it poses, may come less from a sort of everybody and, you know, she's sitting around with this inner circle saying, how can we destroy the United States and how can we assert world domination? And more from the fact that this is what rising nations do. You know, they they try to become more dominant. They try to advance their interests. And that is often at the expense of the interests of other states.
1: So, Sheena, picking up on that, um, I, th- I think I read this somewhere because I don't think I I've had the clarity of mind to think this all on my own. But 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 somebody I, I recently said, um, you know, being a dictator is not a position of strength. Um, you, you know, you, if if you were strong, you 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 wouldn't need to impose your will on everybody. What's Corey said that. Um, so that? That you just said, yeah, yeah probably. Um, uh, <laughs> but but but. Um, uh, you know the the, the question is: um, as she concentrates power around himself, does this make him stronger? Or does this make the system more brittle? And one of the reasons we, I, you know, I ask one of the you know things that we can point to in all of this is, despite you know recently coming out of a People's Congress and seemingly embarking on another um, you know period where he was clearly in charge, we've had recent a story of tumult within the rocket forces, for example. Um, we, all, we also have the strange Gong story. You can tell us where he is. Maybe he's in San Diego with Corey. I don't know where he is. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, do, do, do we see um, this as a, as a little bit of paranoia on his part?
4: Yeah, so let me pick up on the, the point that um, that Rosa was making a moment ago about, you know, how much of this is just what, what rising powers do. Um, and, you know, there's an extent to which rising powers historically have always caused some instability or at least some change and dynamism in the international system as other powers decline relative to whatever power the United States, Great Britain, whoever is rising, and everybody has to adjust and get used to the new distribution of power. But here's the thing, right? What Xi Jinping is trying to make secure is not sort of a rising China writ large. He's fundamentally concerned, and he's been very explicit about this, about what he calls political security, which is the security of China's socialist system, the CCP Central Committee, and Xi Jinping at the core of that committee. The Chinese Communist Party is 9% of China's population. Right? That is what Xi Jinping is trying to secure. Nine percent of the population's control over the rest of the country's 1.3 billion people. Right. That's very different than the sort of broad historical thinking about a rising power taking its place next to other rising powers in the international system. This is fundamentally about Xi Jinping's personal security and the security of the regime itself, and that's the point that I was trying to make in the foreign affairs piece that that um, you mentioned. And, and thank you for that, by the way, um, is that a regime security concept driving grand strategy is going to look and feel very different, and it is partly based on an insecurity that I think it's very hard for outside observers to understand. So I wrote my first book about dictatorships in the anti-communist world during the Cold War. Um, And one of the things that was so striking to me in reading through their diaries, their personal papers, you know, interviews um, with people who had known them or who had been around their, their internal decision making is just how paranoid they were to a degree that really surprised me. And that paranoia is sometimes about other countries in the international system. And I think for China, a lot of it actually is about the potential for the United States to be a threat to the Communist Party, not to the the 1.3 billion people of of China writ large. Um, But often, and this gets back to your point about why Xi Jinping shows up in combat fatigues and and where is Qin Gang and where, you know, what's going on with the military, is that often the biggest threats to dictators are from the people around them. Um, So two thirds of the time when a dictator loses power, it's not to a popular revolution and it's not to, uh, you know, a foreign invasion of some kind or foreign destabilization. It's actually a, a coup. Um, it's people around them, particularly in the military, in the security forces who try to take power away from them. Now, it's less common in Leninist systems, communist systems like the, the one that China has. But Xi Jinping has been very, very concerned from the beginning about party loyalty over the, the PLA. And, you know, one of the first things he did after he took power was took out the top two military leaders and then proceeded to purge down through the ranks on anti-corruption grounds. And then after he was done with the military, he did the same thing with the internal security apparatus. So I think we really have to be careful because we look at this and we're like, hey, China's getting stronger. But Xi Jinping looks at this as a dialectic. He's in in this sense a sort of classic Marxist-Leninist where The more powerful China gets, oddly enough, the weaker and more threatened it feels. Um, And I think that's very hard for Americans to wrap our heads around because we are worried about our own, you know, what we see as flaws in our security or as China's strengths. Whereas I think, you know, China sees, well, the more powerful we get, actually, the bigger the risks and the challenges are. And I think that that um, that's a real gap in how the United States looks at China and how Chinese leaders see their own sense of security and I think it, you know, it makes it easy to underestimate the amount that paranoia and insecurity kind of drive this. But again, when I say insecurity, it's insecurity for the nine percent of the population that is the Communist Party and its leadership, not for the whole country.
2: I think the, so. I have a question. I, I think that's a really interesting and thoughtful point. Um, you know, that 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 paranoia, that internal paranoia about power, personal power, insecurity. Uh, can't be underestimated it's a driver of decision making at the top um and you know that china has vul- that china both has real vulnerabilities as a power that range that include things like corruption and it- demographics environmental issues internal repression economic stagnation you name it but there are also actual insecurities of the the individual human beings who are who are currently holding on to power and who are benefiting most from their system um, and that we shouldn't, that when we think about China, that we 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 shouldn't think of it as this all-powerful group of geniuses, that it's also a bunch of people who are really worried and they're worried about their country and they're worried about their own self-preservation, their own hides in all kinds of ways economically and in a very literal sense, which tends to be less true in this country, thank goodness. Um, but I guess I wonder... Um, you could tell a a somewhat similar story about the rise of the U.S. and about the what influences the decision-making of our national security leaders. And, and I'm going to paint a a really, I'm going to caricature it, right? But I mean, this is sort of the military-industrial complex, right? Or the military-security-industrial complex these days, or tech complex, you name it. That, that all nations, that decision-making... Uh, is influenced, that, that leaders are influenced by their own self-interest, um, their economic self-interest, their desire to retain power, that in the United States, um, we have extreme economic inequality, we have political decision-making and economic wealth are concentrated in, I, I don't know if it's going to be, I'm not going to say, you know, nine percent, you know, the, the, the issues are very different, right? That we don't have a dictatorship. Um, we don't have the equivalent of the Communist Party, but we certainly have economic and political elites uh, and power is relatively concentrated in those elites. And as we have seen, we often make totally irrational decisions, you know, Congress, Congress funds stupid stuff, right congress funds things that don't make any sense for us militarily because it helps them you know it helps them in their district it helps their cronies that we, we that we too have a very difficult time we're not none of us are purely rational actors the united states does not act purely in its self interest internationally or domestically you know we're not we don't kind of say oh okay um clearly we need to do x and y so we're going to align ways and means and we're going to get it done that all sorts of stuff gets in the way such as oh but i want to get reelected, or oh but i want to do a favor for my friend or oh but you know my stock portfolio or or oh but my career after politics that, that all of those things affect decision making often in ways that run counter to what rationally should be our, our national interest. So I guess the question, and this is really for Sheena, but also for for Corey and for you, David, is it is t- to what extent does that make China different from any other rising power insofar as there were, there are always going to be considerations of individual self-aggrandizement, self-protection, and so on. Uh, is is it simply is it is it simply that the form they take in china is different and we need to understand it or 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 do you see it as sort of just qualitatively different altogether in ways that if we need to think about it as 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 in a completely different category than the way we we always sort of think well you know putin's got to think about this and that and you know biden has to think about this and that and trump had to think about this and that or you know, or at least Trump was. <laughs> I think in Trump's case, the sort of self-preservation instinct we we saw was certainly first and foremost. But but in any case, I'll, I'll throw that back to all the rest of you.
4: So I, I think you know, there's this great line um, that's actually in the Federalist Papers. I think one of the the um, pieces written by Madison where he talks about you know, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. And he says, you know, the the, the chief issue with a, a government um, that has to be administered by men over men is that you have to, uh, the government has to be able to control the governed, right? If this is the Vivarian, what makes a state? You have to kind of ha- be able to run things. Um, and then it has to control itself. And it's that second part that's really at the heart of, I think, democratic politics that makes the United States or Great Britain um, or, you know, other places that have electoral democracy different. And there are two. Parts of democratic institutions that I think um, lead to that capacity for self correction. I am not in any way going to try to defend um, every congressional budgetary decision. My colleagues at AEI do a great job pointing out, for example, many of these suboptimal decisions uh, made about the defense budget and how we could do it better. Um, but there is there are two mechanisms by which um, if the United States gets off track, um, the government can check itself. So prevent a mistake or correct one. One is separation of powers. Right. Congress passes a, a law. The Supreme Court can can check that. Um, the executive uh, wants to appoint somebody who's a really bad idea. Congress can say no. Right. That that checks and balances in, in our separation of powers Um Put some immediate or not immediate, but some but some check on on flawed decision making, and then the the ultimate one is the ballot box, right? And so we have um, party alternation. So you don't like the decisions of an incumbent or a party, um, that can change. Right now, if if people don't like some of the policies Xi Jinping has adopted, um, they have very little formal recourse. The Supreme Court, the court system, answers to the party. It doesn't. The military is a is a party army, not a national army. Um. And so there's, there's no separation of powers and there's no competitive election that lets you ultimately change either the, the people or the party if you decide you want something different. Um, so it seems to me, and again, this isn't perfect. And, um, you know, leaders are, are flawed, you know, cynical, sometimes self-preserving or, or um, pursue their own interests in, in any given political system. Um, but, the American system does have some capacity for self-preservation and um, self-correction built into it that I think a single-party Leninist system just just doesn't have, um, and I do think that's that's one of the important distinctions that that is what's valuable about liberal and democratic politics. Um, so that's kind of my my initial philosophical take, but I'm, I'm curious. Um, for both Corey and David, and and Corey, especially when it comes to civil relations and Xi Jinping's relationship with the military, what your take on that is.
1: I I want to turn it to Corey, because there's no way that I would try to follow up a response that was that thoughtful, clear, and historically grounded. It would just make me look bad. Uh, I thought it was a very good response. Corey, what about you? You, you know, you, you share none of the fears. I,
3: so I too thought it was a brilliant and exquisite response. The only thing I would add to it is that um you know uh, Sheena didn't emphasize the danger and coerciveness of the Chinese system. I mean, if you disagree with policy it's it's not just you get to run against this guy. The head of Interpol flat out. Chinese head of Interpol flat out disappeared and has not reappeared. Their foreign minister disappears and mysteriously loses his job. Jack Ma gets his company taken away from him, um, and and probably a large part of his fortune taken away from him. So that once a coercive state gets put in place, it's very difficult to break its hold. I have a question for Sheena, if I may, David.
1: You you may, but I'm going to ask Sheena to listen to your question and then withhold her answer until I do the break, and then we'll do her answer after it. But go ahead.
3: My question is, given all the disincentives for not supporting the Chinese Communist Party, why is only 9% of the population member, why are only 9% of the population Chinese Communist Party members, when there's every incentive to do it and very few not to? It's
1: a great question. And we'll come back in a moment to answer it. For now, I would say to all of you who are out there just joining us, who aren't members, uh, who want to be members and be able to listen to the whole podcast, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It's $5 a month. You get to hear the whole podcast, which means the rest of it beyond this point and all the other podcasts we do nine or 10 a week. Um, and uh, for those of you who are members, you're in luck because you're going to get to hear the answer to that question <laughs> in just one uh, moment. Uh, bye bye to those of you who are leaving now, go sign up for membership and stand by. You'll
2: never know the answer.
1: You'll never know. Uh, and it's, <laughs> you know, I bet it's a good one. Uh, and uh, stand by members.